Uh, those of you who have been with us know that we are in the midst of a new teaching series that we entitled This or That, and it revolves around the subject of decision-making, recognizing, of course, that it's decisions more than anything else that shape the direction of our lives. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, maybe you remember this statistic, that the average person makes about 70 conscious decisions a day. You do the math on that, that's about 25,000 decisions over the course of the year. And so I did a little bit more math and realized that in my life, that means up until this point, I've made about 1 million decisions. I did the math on Pastor Sheldon's age, that's like 200 million decisions, no. <laughs> We made that joke at 9 o'clock, and he didn't come onto the stage and slap me, so I figured we're, we're okay with that one again. Think about it, though. I mean, decisions are, are so influential. They are so important. But it leads to this other truth about decision-making that we're going to focus on today, and that's that we've all made bad decisions. Everybody wants to make great decisions. I mean, you don't have to be a person of faith, a believer. It doesn't matter about your faith background. Everybody that I know wants to make solid decisions. But the truth is, we've all made some bad ones. Decisions we wish we could take back. Decisions that we wish there were an undo button for. Wouldn't it be great if life had an undo button? Just like the backspace key. Can we take it back a day or a week or even just a moment? Let me give you a moment. This one happened in my life when I was about 17 years old. I was driving my girlfriend home in my dad's big, beautiful Buick LeSabre. Sky blue, gorgeous, two-tone, you know, with the vinyl top, a lot of car. Remember, you didn't have to do safe distancing because there was two or three car lengths just between the windshield and the front bumper. 1976, Buick LeSabre. This was the good life. 17 years old, driver's license, girlfriend in the seat next to me, driving down Bromsgrove Road right in front of my high school, friends waving enviously, suckers, look at me, paying attention to all of those things, friends, school, girlfriend, not paying attention, of course, to the Corvette Stingray right in front of me who put on his brakes to turn into the driveway, ironically, right across from my high school. You know, Corvettes, as I came to realize, are made primarily out of fiberglass. <laughs> Buick Sabres are made out of steel and a lot of it. So one crumples a little bit, the other just disintegrates, I mean, almost evaporates on impact. Now, to make matters worse, we learned in the after event of that little mix-up that the guy driving the Corvette didn't own it. He was, in fact, returning it to the owner who lived in the driveway into which he was turning. I just helped him deposit and sit up on the driveway right onto the front lawn in a couple of pieces. Whose fault was it? My fault. I mean, completely my fault. Why did it happen? Bad decisions. School, friends, girlfriend, road, no, not so much. Bad decision. 
And I remember my girlfriend in the aftermath of that, a few moments later, just looking over at me and saying, this is going to be a character-forming experience. And she was right. How many of you have made a bad decision? And this is just kind of mass confession time. How many of you have made a bad decision? I see some hands, not all hands. A few of you haven't raised your hands. You're making a bad decision right now by lying in church. But imagine you were to take all the decisions in your life, write them on little slips of paper, stick them in a jar. Huge jar, obviously. Don't you just wish that you could go back and pull out a few of them, tear them up, throw them away. But it's kind of like that old carnival game, you know, of trying to get the ping pong ball out of the goldfish bowl that by the time you get your hand in there and wrapped around the ball, you can't, you can't pull it out of the bowl anymore. They're so close, but you can't take them back again. But if you could, what are the moments that you would reach in, take out, tear up? What would the decisions be? I was lying to my spouse. I was hiding an addiction. I did something. I said something terrible out of anger. Those, those moments where, where you think, sometimes just seconds after it happened, I wish I could go back. I, I wish I could do it again. I wish there were a mulligan, like a do-over for life. If I could just do it a little bit differently, walk that road backwards, avoid that temptation, whatever it was. But the reality is, We know it, but it's important to name it. You cannot go back. You cannot change it. You can't change the past. Here's a theological truth, too. Not even God changes the past. I don't know that it's a cannot, but it's a does not. God does not change the past. God can heal, but God heals in the present and heals for the future. God does not change the past, but he does something about the past. And we're going to look at that today. The most difficult thing about our decisions is that we can't go back and change them. And if we can't undo them, how is it that we move forward without, in, without carrying all of that weight, all of the infected result of that past history of poor decisions? Some people will say, listen, just, just get over it. Just forget about it. Move on. It'll go away. And some things will. One of the remarkable things about the human memory is that some of the bad memories will fade, and they do fade. But some don't. Some just stay with you. You know what I'm talking about. They haunt you forever, and they just keep resurfacing. And the more you push them down, the more they leak out in other ways and infect your life. Other people will say, well, you did some bad things. Now just try and load up on really good things, kind of like karma. If you you do enough of the good things, it'll balance out the bad things. You'll hit a tipping point. But honestly, that doesn't seem to work either. The bad stuff is still there. You still carry it. So let me ask you this question, just as we, as we prepare to launch into it. How is it that you think God deals with the bad decisions that we carry forward in our lives? What does God do with those things? And in order to address that, to unpack it a little bit, we're going to spend our time this morning walking through the story of how Jesus deals with a person who was filled with regret. A well-known story. story of a man named Peter. It's the one that Minnie read the first part of 
today. Peter, probably the best known of all Jesus' disciples. You may know lots about Peter. Peter was the disciple in whom Jesus invested the most. Peter was Jesus' guy. I mean, he recruited him, he encouraged him, he discipled him, he taught him. When Peter, when Peter was afraid, Jesus would pick him up again. When Peter's mother-in-law fell sick, Jesus went and ministered to her and healed her. When Peter was out of line, Jesus corrected him and then forgave him. And in response, Peter made a decision. Peter made a promise to Jesus that he would be loyal. I'll be faithful. He said, Lord, I will follow you anywhere, whether it means prison, even death. And he made the promise just minutes before Jesus was arrested. And then we're set into motion a series of spiraling events that led eventually to the cross. And if you know the rest of the story, and it's hinted at in the scripture that many read for us, you know that not only did Peter not live up to the promise, he categorically denied it in the face of open questioning. And here's the moment. Jesus is arrested. Peter follows him to the house of the high priest. And this is what it says. Again, this is what you heard in Luke chapter 22. It says there were some people gathered around. This is outside the house of the high priest where they're holding Jesus. And they'd kindled a fire there in the middle of the courtyard. And they sat down together. And Peter sat down with them. He's kind of in disguise at this point, hiding out, trying to figure out what's going on. What are they doing with Jesus? And then somebody spots him and calls out. A servant girl saw him there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, hey, this man, this man was with him, with Jesus. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. It's one of those moments where where we get to hear ourselves speak, and the minute after we've said it, we can't believe what just came out of our mouths. You've been there? I can't believe I just said that. I can't believe I just did that. And if you know the story, you know that it happens, it happens a second time. Similar accusation. Peter says, I don't know him, this Jesus guy. I don't know anything about him. And then it happens a third time, and the same thing happens. I don't know Jesus. By the way, have you ever noticed how one bad decision compounds itself? Just builds on the next one. One lie to your spouse is followed by another lie to cover up the first one. One slip in temptation makes it easier to slip even further down the next time. That's Peter. One bad decision leads to another, leads to another. And by the time the night is done and the rooster, the cock crows three times, Regret settles in and it overwhelms him. This is how the scripture describes it. It says, then Peter remembered the word that the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And what's the result? He went outside and he wept bitterly. That's regret. That's the moment when Peter realizes there's no taking it back. I can't, I can't undo that. And it's that bitterness, it's that pain, it's that weight that so many people live under every day. And maybe for some of you joining us online or in the room, it's there right now. Which is why it's so important that we get to the second part of the story. The part that Minnie didn't read, but she should get to read. She read the bad news. Minnie, you should get to read the good news next time. 
This is from the Gospel of John. I'm going to invite you, if you have your Bibles, to open them up to the Gospel of John in chapter 21. If you have the Bible app, just turn it on. We're in John 21. We're going to work our way through the story a little bit at a time. So I'm going to ask you to just keep your thumb in there as we have a look. Starts in verse 1. It says, Afterward, Jesus appeared to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. And it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, which just means the twin, he was one of two brothers, Simon and, uh, and Thomas and, and Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two other disciples, they were all together. Now, there's something they all held in common, this group of disciples, and we know it from other parts of the story. These were all the professional fishermen. They were fishermen by trade. They're all hanging out together. And they said, we're going out to fish. Peter said, I'm going out to fish. And they said, hey, we'll go with you. And so they climbed into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. Some fishermen, right? Professionals, really professional. I'm going out to fish, Peter says. A statement that is absolutely loaded with regret. And here's why I think is why. If you leaf back a little bit in the Gospel of John and just figure out where this is situated in the story. You might be surprised to notice that this is all happening after the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus had come back from the grave. They'd seen him multiple times. He'd appeared to his disciples. You would think there would be this swell of optimism, excitement. The Lord is back. Our Lord and Savior is back. Everything is going to be great. But notice Peter. Peter doesn't go back to Jesus. Peter retreats into life before Jesus. He goes to what he knows, to to what's familiar. He, He goes back to fishing. And as he goes, he takes all the other fishermen back with him. They go to what they know, to what's familiar. They go back to routines. You know what this is like. You make a decision. It's there. It's in the regret jar. You feel like there's no taking it back. And what do you do? You run away. You run to a place where you feel safe, to what you know, to what's comfortable and familiar. You run to a habit, shopping or drinking or working too many hours during the week. You run away from the people where there's conflict. You could literally end a relationship that was causing trouble rather than dealing with what's in the jar of regret. What you're really saying is, I don't know how to deal with the decision, so I'm going back to fish. Going to what I know, to what's comfortable. Here's a question to think about as you have a look again at the story. How do you think that's working out for Peter? Group of professional fishermen. They go out in a boat. They fish all night. They get nothing. And this should be easy for them to do. But here's what we need to see. When you're on the run, when you're avoiding, when you're hiding, that strategy, that tactic, because that's what it is, strategy of avoidance, it may make you feel just a little bit better in the moment, but in the end, it doesn't work. It's not productive. It doesn't heal. It doesn't transform. You don't change. You just run. And here you catch Peter on the run. He's stuck. Literally, he's stuck out in a boat 
with people who are unsuccessful in this thing that used to be their ply and trade. He's trailing with them decisions that he cannot change. He has nowhere to go, nothing left to try, stuck. And he's failed and he has to live with this regret. And this is exactly the moment where Jesus shows up. So have a look again. We're in verse 4 in John's gospel. Listen to this. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. I mean, isn't that true? Isn't that just true? After a decision, a bad decision, or a series of them, you feel alone, you feel isolated, you feel like God is, is miles away, you're confused. God is as far away as God could be. But could it be that God is right there? We don't see it. We don't recognize it. Let's read on. Jesus called out to them, friends, have you any fish? Ouch. I don't know about you, but that sounds, that sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? Professional fishermen, they know what they're doing. They just had a terrible night. Nets are empty. Jesus on the shore, relaxed, hasn't been working. Hey, how's it going out there? Got any fish? In other words, this strategy you're trying, how's it really working? The running away, the, the avoiding, how's that working? Got any fish? I mean, maybe Jesus asked that question of us too. A question in your life, maybe it's, hey, how's it really going in your marriage? How's it really going with that temper that you have? How's that problem at work that you're trying to avoid? That place you're trying to cut corners? Got any fish? (laughs) What are the conversations you're avoiding? The decisions you're hiding from? Friends, haven't you any fish? That's the question. How do they respond? This is kind of important. Here's what they don't do. They don't offer a a long-winded rationalization answer. Well, we went to the bait and tackle shop, and they sold us bad lures. And obviously, you know, we got the nets mended, but they screwed it up. There's holes in them. They don't blame others. Must have been somebody else's fault. What they say, and this is so important, have you any fish? Their response is simply, no. And I actually think in some ways the story turns on this moment. And what we're about to see happen next might not happen next if they didn't find the courage and the authenticity just to say no, just to own up to it. They don't make excuses. They don't blame anybody else. Ever notice how easy it is when you're stuck to point fingers and blame other people about the decisions that you regret? No fish. No luck. We're stuck. But just be honest. I mean, here's the thing. This is what is, what's about to be unearthed in the story. God cannot redeem that decision from the past until you actually own up to it. So let me ask you simply, what is it that's going on in your life? I mean, think about it. What, what's really going on? What decisions, what regrets, what did you bring into the room today fully expecting that you're just going to bring out with you when you leave? What is really going on? And Jesus is not waiting for a five-page essay, all the reasons why it's not your fault. He's waiting for a simple one-word answer. No, no fish. 
Yeah, I did that thing. Yeah, I said that thing. Yeah, it's, it's my fault. I crushed the Corvette. But no long-winded explanation. That's owning the past. You cannot change the past, but you can own the past. And when we do this, there's this incredible, unique response that Jesus brings. Watch what happens next. They say, we've had no success. We're failures out here, just like we were failures in following you. And here's what Jesus says. Throw your net onto the right side of the boat, and there you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because there was such a large number of fish. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, Look, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around himself because he'd taken it off. And he jumped into the water. And the other disciples, the smarter disciples, they followed him in the boat, towing the net full of fish. They weren't far from shore, only about 100 yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. Hold on to that. We're going to come back to that in a minute. A fire of burning coals with fish on it and some bread. And and Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you just caught. And Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore full of fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come on. Let's have some breakfast. (laughs) I love that. First thing you need to notice here is that when the disciples were at their most vulnerable point, Jesus responds with blessing. He could have said anything here. He could point the finger. He could accuse. He could condemn. They have nothing. They've been failures. They're failures still. No fish. Their resume is ruined. But what does Jesus do in that moment? He blesses them. It's a picture of what the Bible calls grace. And the thing about grace is in the end, it actually has nothing to do with you and me. Grace emerges entirely from the heart and the character of God. It's not about what's inside the decision jar. It's from God who loves and blesses people because of who he is, not because of what's in the jar. That's grace, which is why Jesus doesn't say to the disciples, maybe you don't have any fish because you're losers. Your failures, your betrayers. You learned your lesson yet? No, he, he blesses them right there in their moment of shame. And you better believe they felt shame. Years ago, there was a Christian professor, a writer, a man named Tony Campolo. He's actually been here. He spoke here a couple of times. He's been around long enough. Some of you might remember. Uh, Tony went to Hawaii to speak at a conference. Because he flew in from the East Coast, his, his schedule was all sort of turned around. So he woke up really early, about 3 a.m., ready for breakfast, walks outside of his hotel room down an alleyway in Don, downtown Honolulu, finds a little diner where he could get something to eat. A few minutes after he orders his food, a group of, I call them scantily clad women, make their way into the diner and they begin to tell stories about that night's clientele, kind of, you know, where this is headed. Yeah. And Tony says he's beginning to feel this great sense of self-consciousness. He's there in Honolulu as the keynote speaker for a large Christian conference. 
And so he thinks, you know, I'm just going to make an inconspicuous exit. But before he could sneak away, he overheard one of the one of the women say to a friend, you know, tomorrow's my birthday. The friend kind of snapped back at her sarcastically. So what? I mean, you expect us to make a big deal out of it, saying happy birthday? The woman who said it, her name was Agnes, said, no, no, I just, I just thought I'd mention it. Tomorrow's my birthday. Tony overheard her go on to say that nobody had actually celebrated her birthday before, so she wasn't expecting anything at all. After the women left, Tony kind of paused. He, he went behind the counter. He met the person who was serving that night. His name was Harry. And he said, that, that group, uh, do they come in often? They're here every night, Harry said. Same time. So the next night, 2.30 in the morning, Tony returns with a huge sign that says, Happy Birthday, Agnes. And he and Harry had worked together to bake this giant cake, icing, candles, the whole deal. And word of the party must have somehow spread around town because there were prostitutes wall to wall in that diner by 3.30. And on the dot, in walks Agnes and her friends. And the whole room erupts, happy birthday, Agnes. And poor little Agnes just kind of lost at that moment. She doesn't know whether to laugh or cry. They cheered, blow out the candles. We're ready. Let's eat some cake. And Tony paused and said, can we pray together for you, Agnes? In that moment, in the middle of the night, in a greasy spoon diner, Tony Campolo, Harry the cook, about half the prostitutes from Honolulu, stopped and prayed for Agnes. (laughs) That's grace. It finds you where you are. It finds you in the weak and vulnerable moments of life. That place that you're working so hard to make sure nobody will ever know or nobody will ever see. That's grace. That's Jesus saying, come on, let's have some breakfast together. Come and be with me. Come and feel what it's like to be loved. And just so you know, because there's sometimes confusion on this, grace is not Jesus' way of saying, All those sins, all those failures and their consequences, they don't matter. They weren't a big deal. Grace doesn't mean that that stuff is suddenly okay. It's not that our sin is okay. It's that that Jesus is able to say what he says and do what he does because of the cross, which somehow miraculously in God's providence has a way of dealing ultimately with the consequences of those things. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it. Keep your thumb in John 21. Flip with me, though, to Romans, the book of Romans in chapter 5, and listen to what it says in verse 8. It says, Consequently, just as one trespass, one sin, resulted in condemnation for all people, a.k.a. just because of one person's bad decision, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. That's the cross. Just as through the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners. That's the regret that we carry. So also the obedience of the one man. Through that one man, many will be made righteous. Again, that's the cross. And only Jesus can do this. Listen, there's plenty 
There's plenty of philosophies and religious traditions that can teach you how to be a good person, that can help you think critically and analytically about the past. But there is no religion, there is no person, there is no other being in the world who's actually dealt with the consequences of the sin in your past. And the challenge that you face right now is not paying for your sin. The challenge is accepting the fact that Jesus has already paid for it. God so loved the world that he dealt with your past and you get to receive what he has done and you just accept it. As a friend of mine said, God loves you, now deal with it. (laughs) Sometimes we think, well, that's the easy part. No, that's not the easy part. It will take all the courage you can muster, all the humility, all the surrender to feel like a failure and accept love and redemption in the middle of that. It will take all the courage, all the humility, all the surrender you can muster to God to let you feel loved when you've failed. In a few moments, we're going to spend some time doing that together because it's important. But let me just show you one more key moment in the story before we end. Back in John chapter 21. Now we're in verse 15. When they'd finished eating breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And if you know the story, you know that Jesus asked him that same question. Do you love me? Asked a second time, and Peter responds the same way. And then it comes a third time. Do you love me? And Peter responds again, Lord, you know I do. You seeing a pattern here? You see what Jesus is doing? He's walking Peter right back to the moment of that bad decision. That night when, when Peter went back on his word, back on his oath, back on his loyalty, denied even knowing Jesus three times on the night when Jesus most needed people around him. And when did it happen? It happened as those strangers confronted Peter huddled around a charcoal fire. And here they are again that morning, huddled around a charcoal fire, the smell in the air probably reminding Peter of the smell, the terrible scent of what he'd done. And here's Jesus. He walks him right back into that one moment. Peter has to be thinking, oh, this is uncomfortable. I don't want to go here. I don't want to talk about that. But you see, grace doesn't, doesn't ignore or bury the sins of the past. It unearths it. It brings it into the light. And yeah, there's tension in this. It doesn't feel good. It won't feel good in your life either. There may be tension in your mind right now as you're listening, confessing, talking about sin. It doesn't feel like a good thing. But Jesus walks us right back into that moment and faces it with us. And here's the thing. We need this. We need it because so often our perspective on grace is that That God says, I forgive you just in order that we feel better and then can go back to our lives. But that's not what happens here. Jesus wants to save Peter from the outcome in which Peter continues to live day after day after day. The same pattern of failure and bad decisions that carried him into these moments of regret. It's not just, I want to feel better about it. Jesus says, I want to ask you a question. Do you love me? In other words, 
How'd you like to have another shot at it? Let's walk this together. Let's do it again. A good question to ask ourselves. Do you long for grace just so they don't have to feel bad anymore? Or do you long for grace so that you can be empowered to live the kind of life that Jesus has mapped out for you? That's why Jesus asked them not once or twice, three times, do you love me? Are you ready? We're going to walk through each moment together. I'm going to challenge you to try again. And that kind of leads to the other part of this. And with this, we're going to end. Jesus isn't just walking him into these past decisions in order to kind of rub his nose in it. He's letting him know that there is life on the other side. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. He's saying to Peter, your past, your past doesn't have to define you. You don't have to go on thinking yourself only as a failure. You get to be the leader that I know you to be. Feed my sheep. You're a pastor. As a pastor, I see people wrestle with it all the time. I wrestle with it in my own life. I've made too many mistakes. I'm not qualified for this opportunity, for that activity, for this leadership. I'm not qualified to serve. My past is too much. I know God loves me, but he can't love me out of this. If that's you, you need to hear this. Listen closely. God does not erase the past, but he does something far, far better. He redeems the past and he uses it to build a life of significance. What you or I might call a past of brokenness or sin, he can actually use as the bedrock for a life of real significance and change. He can redeem it. Whatever it is, whatever you carry, no matter how bad it is, He can redeem it. He can do it for you. And I want to give you the chance to respond to what he's going to do in your life. So I'm going to ask you, if you will, just to close your eyes, to bow your head for a moment. And I want you to think carefully, really carefully about a decision that you regret. But a place where you need to be honest with God. Could be a pattern of dishonesty. Or some resentment, some anger that you've been carrying around. It could be something that you said or did and you, you wish you could take it back. And instead of trying to hide it or avoid it or run from it, I want you to try and draw close to that moment, to that pain. It's hard, uh, makes us vulnerable, but just hold it tightly. And into that moment, we're going to pray. Jesus, we, we, want to bring, we want to bring to you all of who we are, including those things from which we hide and where we run away. We're not going to hide anymore. There's no reason for us to do that, Lord. We trust that you're with us in our most vulnerable moments, that you're going to be gracious, that you can even bless us because that's who you are. Or not because we deserve it, because it's rooted in your character and how we worship you for the character of God we see revealed in you. Jesus, you also know the question that kind of hangs in the air. Do we really love you? Lord, we want to say yes. Yes, we do. We want 
another shot. We want to take a step towards you. We want the kind of life that you promised, but we need it with you. We need your grace. We need your work in us. We can't do it alone. So Lord, we bring ourselves before you in a new way. We leave our sins with you and on the cross. And we receive your grace. And we move forward with you at our side. And with your name in our hearts and on our lips. In the name of Jesus. The name in which we pray. Amen.